0: Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco and Lit Hub Radio, episode 193, Being Mortal. On the episode today, we will talk about all the things human beings never want to talk about. Death, pain, sickness, and more, when we discuss Atul Gawande's seminal 2014 book, Being Mortal, Medicine, and What Matters in the End. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys.
1: Hey! Hey. Nice to see y'all. Listeners, I gotta tell you something that's important. If you have ever wanted to know, is Ryder Strong Jesus? (laughs) <laughs> you have got to get a load of what he looks like now.
2: Yeah, Ryder. Oh. What conditioner do you use? Because should is it we, looking good? Should we screen, do? Nice? I need to
1: screenshot
0: this so no, that, so <laughs> listeners can see it. You can if you want. But I, yeah, I haven't cut my hair since last February. I, it was like a month before lockdown that I had gotten a haircut, uh, and my hair has never been this long in my life.
1: Put um, your arms out like a cross. Writer? No, don't do that. <laughs> no, although no, I that I was... do
2: agree that the shirt adds to the effect.
0: <laughs> Are you taking a, you're taking a photo with your camera, not a screenshot? Okay, tech know. expert <laughs> right. Todd Goldberg. Uh Yeah, man, it, having long hair it turns out to be a real pain in the ass. Yeah, like when you take a shot. First of all, I like. I would wash my hair like once every two weeks. What? Like, when I had short hair. What? Yes! <laughs> okay, Todd, let me ask you this. You wash hair every time you take a shower?
1: Every single time.
0: And then you put product in it after you get out of the shower?
1: Well, not I don't put product in every day, but like if I'm leaving the house, yeah. Right. So guess what? You don't have
0: to do that. If you just don't wash it for five days, then you don't need to, you're not taking out the oils that just naturally occur and then have to put oil in your hair. So you just don't wash your hair as often and you won't have to use product as often. You can still take a shower every day, but don't wash your hair every time. This was a huge revelation for me. (laughs) I
2: like watching you guys discover. Yeah. There's a whole world for you. There's a whole yeah. world for you
0: about it. Anyway, you, you have to wash your hair when you have long hair. <laughs> like, every time I take a shower, I have to wash my hair now. And it's a pain in the ass. And we go through shampoo like crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, and then just having wet hair when, when it's all the way down your back. Man. Mm-hmm.
1: Let me, oh, it's let, annoying. Let, let me just go back to the whole you don't need to wash your hair thing. What about the smell? Yeah. Like, doesn't No, it
2: doesn't smell. Todd,
1: you've been shampoozled. Yeah, that's the term. <laughs> wow.
2: <laughs> I mean, I only wash my hair about every three days.
1: So well, it'll I kn- go
2: a very long time.
1: I know Wendy I used doesn't, to go two weeks. I know Wendy doesn't wash her hair every day, but then she uses like some sort of dry shampoo or some shit mm-hmm. also.
0: You're right. That I've been told since I've been complaining about having long hair, I've been told that's a thing I need to discover. But yeah, like I mean I because because what I used to what I what I used to I have really frizzy hair. You know, anybody who watched Boy Meets World and the the last time I had long hair knows I had, like, really crazy, frizzy hair. Muppet hair. And, uh, (laughs) And, yeah, like, you know, it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I discovered that I didn't have to wash it and then constantly put stuff in it I could just not wash it every you know two weeks and it'd be oh, fine I
1: don't know about this I, yeah. but okay. this um I, so you're saying that I've into the grips of, of big shampoo big shampoo yep. <laughs> big shampoo Wait, is I'm sticking. gonna tell
2: you another thing about big shampoo this is <laughs> fascinating shampoo should not create suds like that right. is just to give you the just to feeling. make us feel better yeah, yeah. If actually good shampoo, it's just the liquid and there's no parabens and all that stuff in it. So, yeah, you all the stuff that makes us feel like we're clean is just made up by marketing. And I think the first companies to discover this was toothpaste. Toothpaste also shouldn't get all, like, foamy. Really? Yeah. That's huh. marketing.
1: But to be clear, you're brushing your teeth every day.
2: I am brushing my teeth twice a day and flossing, but, like, if you get hippie toothpaste, like Tom's toothpaste, right. it yeah. just feels like you're chewing on baking soda, and that's right. good.
1: Yeah, but you know what? I, I kind of like the gritty toothpaste. Yeah, me too. I feel like the gritty toothpaste is, like, getting uh, into the nooks sh- and crannies. Uh, you should go
0: back to, like, the old powder days. Like, that's what they used to <laughs> do. It's like, you'd put powder in a toothbrush and, like, yeah.
1: I, I prefer a harder powdery toothpaste than, like, you know, some sort of, Crest with ribbons of color in it. Like I don't need, I don't need my toothpaste to look appealing. I just need to get in there and get you know the the malted milk ball out of my back molar.
2: Wow. Well, whenever we read a really serious book, we have the most stupid conversation immediately before. So we're right on track. <laughs>
1: I
0: think that's it's appropriate. It's a little lighthearted before we look, get into Julia, the. Look,
1: Julia. Let me okay. just t- let me tell the people here what I'm going through before we discuss this book. I've spent the last. We're late with this episode for a very specific reason. I've spent the last 12 days with jet engine fans blowing in my house 24 hours a day to dry a leak. So I'm a little on edge, Julia.
2: Okay, so uh, I will own that I suggested this book about death and dying. Although Ryder was um, was also reading it.
0: I had already started it and, and kind of put it aside, which I think is what a, a lot of people probably do with this book. But yeah, it's...
2: I've it's been trying time. to read a lot, a lot of science nonfiction this year. That's like my little side book project. Um, and this was on the list, so I suggested it. And yeah, let's get into it. Um, anybody wanna summarize?
1: You're gonna die. <laughs> 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 Period. Hey Literary Disco listeners, this is Todd. If you're like me, you might be getting a little tired of having the same old meals using the same old ingredients. Or maybe, after over a year inside your house, you've just gotten back from the doctor for the first time and found that you need to significantly reduce the number of carbs you're eating. Well, you're in luck, because we just started getting Green Chef at my house, and it is absolutely fantastic. Green Chef is the first ever keto meal kit on the market. It makes sticking to a low-carb lifestyle easy, with recipes averaging only 14 net carbs each. Green Chef is also the first USDA certified organic meal kit company, which means you get to enjoy clean ingredients you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. So at my house, it's just me and my wife, Wendy. Um, And Wendy is a vegetarian and I eat like a 14-year-old boy. Um, so that means sometimes uh, we don't uh, we don't get to share meals together, and um, that's something we like to do. And that's what makes Green Chefs so great, because they have a lot of meals that um, are right for everybody. Now, fortunately, Wendy uh, is a vegetarian, but she eats shellfish. And so this week, we got the blackened shrimp with aioli, which comes with sauteed collard greens, bell pepper, celery, and pecans. It takes 25 minutes to cook and prepare, and it is absolutely fantastic. Um, You know, the the whole process for us this week, there was a knock on the door, the dog went crazy, there was a box of food sitting out there, I opened it up, I started cooking, and in less than 30 minutes, um, I was fully stuffed with all of my serving and most of Wendy's. So we want to share this great meal kit company with you and so we've got a special offer for literary disco listeners. If you go to greenchef.com slash 90disco and use the code 90disco you'll get $90 off and free shipping. That's right. Go to greenchef.com slash 90disco and use the code 90disco to get $90 off including free shipping. I, we think you're just gonna love it. We sure have and invite me over if you can't uh if you can't finish, I'm always down to help you with the blackened shrimp. Green Chef—it's the number one meal kit for eating well.
0: Um, yeah, well, I mean, I can. Inter- I can. T- Atul Gawande is—he's a—he's a surgeon and and a writer who's had a remarkable career in in. I mean, both both as a surgeon and and as a journalist. He's a professor at the Harvard Medical School. He's known as a speaker. He he has like a really famous TED talks. He's won numerous awards. He's published um a bunch of books including better a surgeon's notes on performance and, and the checklist manifesto how to get things right but i think this is his most famous book i, I it's funny like I, I i had a friend recommend this book to me um after her mom died mm-hmm. um because this she found this book very um you know soothing and, uh, so I picked it up, uh, probably a year ago and started it, but I did find it really hard to, I, you know, I got, I got the general gist from the introduction and I didn't, you know, I didn't end up finishing it until Julia, you mentioned it. And I said, oh yeah, I've been wanting to finish that. And I'm, I'm glad I did. Um, but it's, it's, hard. it's certainly, it, it's yeah. hard. It's hard to pick up a book. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's all about death. It's all about, it's all about death and old age. It's like the, the things that we are most scared of
2: Yeah. Oh. So it's nonfiction essays. Oh, mm-hmm. Todd's having some kind of epiphany that he knows him or something. And,
1: well, no. I'm going to mention another book, and I just had a moment where I was like, oh, um, I wonder if this person wrote or knows about this other person, and they do. I'm sorry. that is Great radio, oh, no, folks. Great radio. <laughs> great radio. <laughs> sorry. Anyway, <Gina. laughs>
2: um, nonfiction I guess you know, I consider him an essayist. I've read better. That's an amazing book and he writes essays for the New Yorker, but mm-hmm. this all does hang together like a manifesto. Yeah. Um and yeah, it's I would say it focuses on two things. One is assisted living and nursing homes. Yeah. Um and just being older and what quality of life means. And then the second half is about dying, hospice and making medical decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, in the very last days and months or hours of your life. Um, and it's also very personal.
0: Life. He weaves in a lot of his own
1: family stories. Stuff, no,
0: yeah. His own family stuff, but then also his case studies right. as being you know, a doctor mm-hmm. and, or being around other doctors and their, their case studies. Um, and you
1: know what this book yeah. also did? It, when it came out in 2014, it really kicked off, um, I think, a larger discussion about the understanding of medical narratives in mm-hmm. general. Yeah but also like understanding empathy from the side of the doctor, which Mm -hmm. I think he shows a great deal of because he's a very thoughtful person, but where you also see the other side where it's just clinicians essentially dictating Mm -hmm. care. And so when this book came out in 2014, there wasn't this whole field of study of medical narratives, but even where I teach at, at UC Riverside, it's become super integrated into our medical school. We opened up a medical school, I think, in... 2016, and part of what the med students do is they actually take courses with Emily Rapp Black, um, who has oh, written wow. a bunch of medical narrative books, and is my friend, um, where she's teaching them to write about the experiences that they're having. But you're That's seeing so this, great. yeah, you're seeing this at medical schools a lot, because uh, Michael Andace, the guy who wrote The English Patient, really sort of championed this sort of thing for his med students. Um, in Toronto, I believe it was, and it sort of has swept slowly through. But it's just about, you know, doctors being human beings more. Um,
0: Yeah, it was funny reading this book now... Because I, I I remember a lot of these discussions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I remember around 2015, 2016, like, there were so many essays and conversations about how the medical industry or or, or assisted living or hospice as a concept, you know? Like, I remember, I mean, even, even like, in 2010, um, dealing, you know, when my, gra- my grandfather passed away and, and we were going through that whole experience, like, the the notion of hospice was still relatively, like... New. I mean, I yeah. guess it wasn't new, but it but, but accepting death or the idea of dying at home versus in a hospital, like all those conversations I remember were so like, oh, this is a new thing. This well, is something that, that the, the medical... Yeah, yeah. yeah, they felt yeah. fringe. And now, I mean, and I think in part because of this book, they've become so much more mainstream. It, it, and it was interesting to be reading this book now in 2021 because, it, it, you know, what a lot of the things that he sort of poses as revolutionary are kind of...
1: Or filtering they're, they're, down,
0: yeah. Yeah, they filter down, which is great. I mean, it just goes to show the power of, of good writing and, and uh, you know, uh, good thinking, how it can affect uh, the national conversation because it's definitely... We've definitely reached that point.
1: Well, and also I think that there's... Um, I was just looking at this other book that I have about this, but there's been a lot of conversation because The New Yorker specifically with him, but also with another doctor whose name eludes me at the moment... Have written a lot of medical narrative stuff in the New Yorker. And then the New York Times Magazine has that whole um, section essentially like every other week or so where there's like a medical mystery and they try right. to figure out what it is. And yeah, you. and they really humanize it. And then they turned that um, series of essays in the New York Times Magazine into that Netflix show where that woman, where the doctor is going around to different homes and stuff and meeting with people with these. Uh, these hard to diagnose diseases and essentially giving them the attention that they deserve. And of course, more often than not, the people with the diseases that you can't figure out are women because doctors don't listen to women. Um, and so there's like this whole series of things that are, are coming out from around this, but you know, the things that he talks about in here also have a lot to do with just simple dignity, you know? Yeah. And, um, we're all three of us are now old enough to have experienced, unfortunately, um, the loss of someone that we love that's older than us, um, and what that process is like when you realize that there's it's not it's not about curing someone; it's about waiting for them to die and trying to treat them in a in a palliative way so that they aren't suffering. And it's such a big part of what he talks about. There's a woman late in the book; it might even be the last chapter, who essentially her fear is not of dying. Her fear is of suffering Mm -hmm. and it's just so awful and powerful and sad and difficult to work with. You're like, Oh my God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that's for me, that that's the most effective parts of this book, you know, because, because a lot of his policy discussions and sort of, um, you know, assessments of old age uh, or assisted living facilities and aged care—like it does—it it did feel a little dated, you know, because I feel like those discussions have—you know—the the policies have been changing, and you know, I mean, it's it's sort of timeless that there's always its always going to be an issue, and we always want to avoid it. But I do think that like the most powerful parts of this book are, are almost philosophical, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's this like broader discussion of how do we confront these issues right. and how do we, how do we as individuals confront it? How do we as families confront it? Um, and that is just amazing. Like, I think that it, it's really, a, um, I said the word earlier, I said it in relation to my friend, it's a soothing book in that mm-hmm. regard and that right. it sort of invites you into the darkest scariest part of yourself right fear of death uh, fear mm-hmm. of old age fear of dementia and um it, by taking a sort of unflinching look at it and examining it from so many different angles uh i don't know like you do end up feeling better i mean i felt yeah. better by the yeah. end of the book i was like you know I'm, I'm i'm a little more comfortable with these areas now um and thinking about it and and you know, the, basically, you're you're never going to really feel super comfortable. Um, but I guess, um, the, you know, I, like for me, the 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 best part of the book is when he reaches that whole peak end mm-hmm. conversation. Do you guys yeah. remember this? Yeah. Yeah. Where he discusses how we, you know, there's been studies about how people recognize pain. Um, oh, I love this or yes. discomfort yes. after an experience, right. and they basically record. The, the peak like when it is the worst, which might only have lasted for a second, or could have lasted thirty minutes in right. the course of an hour of, a, of an experiment. But they re, they rec- they remember the peak of their the, the painful experience, and then the end of it, whether it was a positive or negative ending to yeah. uh, uh, you know a, a certain period of time. And like what the, what that means basically is like if you're getting if you're having a procedure done, if it ends positively you actually remember the whole thing more positively right. like, yeah. than, like if you have you know, two
1: minutes without pain at the end you're like right. oh that wasn't so bad
0: yeah right and that was super fascinating like it would the, he, he he kind of breaks it down into like how we we have a remembering self mm-hmm. and an experiencing self yes. And that was so profound to me because I think that is just like so true. And and yet and I've never heard it put in those terms yeah. before. And and here it was out of a real study about actual human you know, pain and measuring it. And yet it's super like to me that has hugely philosophical ramifications. Like and I, I'm gonna remember that forever. Yeah. Like I think about so many things that way. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: I, I love that too because well, my sister and I have actually talked about this for years because in a very different context, she teaches uh, outdoor. She takes like middle schoolers into the woods on a camping trip on like a really difficult, really, really difficult camping trip. That's her job. Um, and she, they, they call it type two fun. Like you're, <laughs> it, you're in peak pain now. Type one fun is like you're having fun. Right. Type two right. fun is that you're in such pain now that later, after this is good and it all works out, you're gonna remember the whole thing like it was incredible. Yes. Right? It was yeah. So well put. Yes. I love that. I'm and, totally and, using
0: yes. that with myself. Yeah, so whenever two so type two fun, <laughs> whenever yeah. something
2: is awful, she'll just right. mutter like, "This is type two fun. This is type two fun."
1: Right. Um, oh, great. It's so great. I love it.
2: But yeah. I, what I really liked about it's
1: like graduate school was type two fun. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so
0: much of life is too
1: two
2: yeah. fun. Um,
1: 2007.
2: What I, <laughs> what I really love, though, about that study that you're describing, Ryder, is like you—he he honors both. Like we have to control right. the peak pin. The controlling the right. peak pin is important, um, and think about the end. It's not an either or. It's not like a debate which is more important. But you can affect the whole experience by focusing on both or. Um, figuring out one or the other if if they're really causing the most the most trouble
1: yeah and you know the that's a fascinating part of it because of the the patient is involved with the experience itself and it reminds me of something in another medical book that i read um about veterinarians um susie fincham gray's book um about uh veterinarians and how for vets the vet is both the doctor and the patient so when a vet is talking to you about your sick cat or your sick dog they are telling you the treatment and they are explaining to you how your well, dog or cat right. feels right right, right. and Whoa. Like, and it's it's a it's like that that Whoa. ability to do that though is that bridge of empathy yeah. to the person to the who the owns the cat or the dog. It's the thing that's missing in most of the bedside manner of doctors because they are talking to you only about the disease, not about the emotion or the physical pain of treating the disease.
2: Yeah. And wow, I that's was, so... I worked at a vet. That was one of my first jobs. I was basically mm-hmm. like a janitor at a small vet practice, which was an incredible experience, but... <laughs> so traumatizing the level of trauma was very (laughs) high but part of that was the vets like vets are they have all the training and knowledge of a doctor but their Mm -hmm. patients can't communicate at all and they you know it's so emotional their patients die sooner than Mm -hmm. a human being and they were all just like carrying this weight of like how hard it is to be a veterinarian so I love hearing that
1: and the life and death stuff is a financial decision more often than a health decision, right? Yeah. Right. So that that comes into play somewhat in um, American healthcare, And he, he talks about that more as it relates to, like, assisted living um, and hospice. But, like, you know, you go to the vet and they say, well, it's going to be $12,000 to save your dog's life. And you're like, $12,000? Like, i got $12,000 sitting around? <laughs> Just oh, let me make it rain for you. Yeah. Um, but for a human it's it, like that uh, that crude cost at the end of life to keep someone alive is really dependent on what your health insurance was 20 years ago if you've if you've carried it forward if you have children and if you have children who love you <laughs> <laughs> Last, so last night... I oh, was,
2: and if you have a daughter, how good is that? And if you
1: have a daughter, be? oh my that God. Little factoid,
0: <laughs> that little factoid was really striking. That was was yeah, like, what is it, really if tricky. you have a daughter, you live longer? Son. Yeah, yes. well, it's the yeah. idea that, that, that your, your, yeah, your care in old age is going to be significantly better if you have more children, Yeah, and especially a daughter. It's yeah. kind of... Uh, Not surprising
2: yeah. to me at all. So, so if yeah, you think I, through neither. all the examples, who's the one right. who like sacrifices yeah. everything to...
0: Yep. Take yep. care of you and whatever. Oh, we're way. watching it happen right now during COVID, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. You see the way the way that women have just dropped out of the workforce because, you know, they need to stay home. And, right. Because childcare and all that. somebody has to do it, right? And who yeah. ends up bearing the brunt of it? It's
1: Well, you know, what's awful. funny is last night I had, um, so I'd finished reading the book like 10 days ago and I was like, ah, I barely remember this. And so I had the audiobook too. And so I was listening to the audio book again, just to remember stuff. And that part came up and I was like, I... I actually remembered something uh, sadly that Ryder had told me. Oh no! <laughs> when, when you know, like fifteen years ago, when Wendy and I decided we weren't going to have kids, and Ryder was like, "Oh yeah, two super smart, uh, highly educated people should not procreate." That's a really smart decision. <laughs> and then, sorry, <laughs> it's, it's fine. I don't, I don't hold against you anymore. Um, <laughs> but I was laying there in bed and listening to that and I pulled my earphone out and I said to Wendy, oh, I gotta tell you this thing I read and then I just heard and Wendy's like, why are you telling me this? Yeah, I agree <laughs> with Wendy. <laughs>
0: well, maybe you guys can like adopt adult daughter now.
1: Yeah, and I was like...
0: <laughs> just be like, take care of
1: us. Our, take care our, of us as we get older. Our nieces better fucking love <laughs> us. My Step My God. Up. Yeah.
0: Well, no, I mean, my whole plan is to start a commune. Uh, that's uh, like an old age commune. Perfect. Well, basically, I mean... I mean that's you know one of the 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 coolest parts of this book to me was like you know when he covers all the old age uh, facilities is that there isn't really like one answer right? right it seems like except it this this notion of autonomy mm-hmm. and self determination mm-hmm. that that's I, that seems so true to me um, yeah. you know that 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 old people are are you know like they they become attenuated to the notion of dying right yeah. like you you do actually get comfortable with with the notion that your existence is is not, or that you're not going to have this huge career you know all the things that we worry about now right mm-hmm. <laughs> at middle age that that they those things actually lessen those anxieties lessen but a new anxiety of just self-determination and mm-hmm. sort of like a sense of home mm-hmm. uh that was fascinating and and i think like really um you know i, I think redirects our focus from like taking care of people's bodies or like, uh, making sure that they, you know, remember to turn the stove off or, you know, all the sort of safety issues that I feel like so much of old age care is is centered on and redirects it towards like, Hey, you know, do you, do you engage with another human being Mm. in the course of your day? Do you feel like your room is your room that you can decorate? Do you feel like life is sort of continuing it in some meaningful way? Like and it's not even just like moment to moment happiness, but self-determination that like that in the course of your life, that you can be proud of like how you spent your day. It just time and time again, his examples kept coming back to like what truly makes people at the end of their life happier is not like moment to moment comfort, but this sense of, of, that they are in charge of it and that they get to create their own space. Like, oh, my God. That
1: that notion of dignity that I said earlier. Yes. I mean, look, guys, when you guys vaguely remember this period of my life, like when my mom, we moved her into an assisted living facility, and it's just like the assisted living facility that they talk about in the book where they move this woman in. She's got her own bedroom, her own kitchen, her own living room. It's a a full-size apartment in this building, and the woman in the book hates it. Mm-hmm. doesn't talk to anyone won't do anything won't walk out of her room you know just starts to devolve into her own self that's exactly how my mom was when we moved her into one of these places and my mom uh not unlike the person you're hearing talking right now something of an ego um <laughs> <laughs> a bit of an extrovert in, in addition to being you know a liar um but, but And all these other things. But she was also quite ill. You know, she had cancer and, and lupus and, you know, a variety of other maladies at this point, including some mental ones. But she just hated this assisted living facility because there was this order that was imposed upon her that was not her choice. Like dinner is served at this time. Mm -hmm. Your pills are delivered at this time. And even though it was assisted living, there was still this notion of like, you got to follow this particular rule. And this is a woman who lived independently without even, you know, she had been divorced from my dad since 1973, you know, Mm. had a great independent life and was, you know, a, you know, a society person, you know, going out and going to parties every day. And all of a sudden she's in this little prison that she views. And so it was really bad. And, So finally one day I I drove out there and she was angry and depressed. And there was, you know, there's just a huge social scene going in there. You go in there and it's like a fucking cruise ship. This place is beautiful. And people seemed happy. And I went up to her room and she was pissed off and she was locked in this room. And I was like, Mom, there are 300 people out there drinking white wine and having a great time. Why are you sitting in here upset? And she's like, I didn't choose to be with these people. And I said, well, here's something that you have in common. No one chose to be with these people. They're all here. And you can either choose to devolve or you can choose to try to do the things that you love to do with these different people. I know they're not your friends. I know they're not the people that you love. Um, But you have to fall in love with some aspect of this. Uh, Otherwise, you know, why not just stop living, stop fighting, basically. Right. And she and ended up doing she that. that? She, she, she took it well, yeah. And she ended up sleeping with half the place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, what good advice from her son. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: she, she really did start to really enjoy herself there. And then she, because she was a little bit younger than some of the folks, she also became like the spokesperson. Like, there's too much salt. There's not mm-hmm. enough salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what happened, honestly, is that her friends died the friend yeah. she made there died. Mm-hmm. And that cycle of loss yeah. was just too much for her. Um, and, it, and it becomes a strange culture because as soon as someone dies, this is the sort of amusing thing, as soon as someone dies, immediately the people that are still living go to their apartment and are like, are you going to be keeping the pots? Because I'd like the pots. Are you going to keep that that stove? Because I'd like that <laughs> stove. Yeah. So after my, after my mom died... Uh, we were cleaning out her place in the assisted living place. And, you know, you get your own furniture and everything there. And my mom had this little sofa that I had bought her. And we're cleaning the place out. And, like, these three little ladies come in and walkers. And they're like, well, we decided that Jan would want one of us to have that little sofa. <laughs> and I was like, what is happening? They're like, They're like, you don't want to t- drive that all the way home. You don't want to have to get a U-Haul for that little sofa. It's adorable. You don't want a U-Haul. And I was like, I don't want a U-Haul. You're right.
2: (laughs) I mean, that is so interesting. Because another thing that, you know, assisted living doesn't solve that he brings up is, you know, our culture is so separated generationally. So Mm -hmm. we have these interesting stratifications that. You know, cannot, will not be solved overnight because of our entire society being built around around them. Like, we're not going to suddenly go back to intergenerational households, no. is my point. Um, but then you have these communities that have habits and norms, like you're describing, Todd, that sound pretty nuts. But
1: <laughs> but they're there. you know? Yeah. Take the
2: little sofa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's how it ended up. I was like, take the little sofa. Whatever you yeah. want, just take but you know the the other side of it, though, too, for my mom in this assisted living facility, and, and they talk about this a bit in the book, is that she was also aware that she was in an industry. Yeah. You know yeah. that there that we are warehousing her illness. Yeah. And that's like that's hard to deal with emotionally. Yeah. It's a lot of shit. Yeah. Right, but but do do but how? Yeah, I mean, the question
0: is, how do we integrate? the elderly into our lives i loved the 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 example um there's one assisted living facility that he describes that is uh, connected to a like a a k through eight or a preschool through eighth grade Mm -hmm. school and i was like yeah and and i i've heard about similar programs like that before um years ago and i i think that makes total sense to me that Mm -hmm. the very young and the very old find this parallel sort of you know, there's, there's, there's this in need for childcare, right? Like we need grownups to watch the little kids. And then there's also this need for elderly care. And in a weird way, just that social, like we can combine those two processes mm-hmm. and they can, they can find each other. Um, I don't know. I, I, have always loved that model. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I was, I was, it was cool to see that that was described in this book, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it, it it's, it's like, to me, the central thesis of this book is like, we cannot, we cannot push we cannot push death and age as far away from our lives as we want to yeah. and that, that that we do so at our own peril mm-hmm. right like as a society and as individuals um like on a personal level it doesn't help you to keep avoiding the specter of right. your own demise. Right. That it's actually really important to have a plan, to ha- have have communication around what you want or what you don't want, um, whether that's with your doctor, with your family, uh, and it's, it's one of those things that, you know, like I, you know, I'm facing my parents getting older and I'm realizing like, right. So much of my parents' anxiety from the ages of like 60 till now was dealing with their parents' death, right. Deaths, right. And like, there was so much struggle around what did, what did their parents actually want? How could they provide for them? How, you know, and I just want to make sure that I don't have that same level of in communication or lack of decision-making before we get into the weeds, you know? Right. Um, You know, not, not only with my parents, like I'm, I'm like ready to like have a sit down conversation after reading this book with my parents about what the next 20 years are going to look like. Uh, But then also with my, in my life, like already I want to start making decisions, Mm -hmm. um, which seems it's, it's terrifying, right? Like, I don't want to think about getting it. But I, if, if you don't make those decisions now in, you know, someone, life. Someone
1: makes them for you. Yeah. Someone makes them for yeah. you.
0: Right. And that's, and, and and unfortunately, we don't live in a country that provides for that, right? Like, we don't live in a country. I mean, we have Social Security, but obviously, that's not enough. Uh, obviously, Medicare is not enough. Um, so, unless, like, right now, it seems like the best way to grow old and die in America is to be rich, which is right. awful. yeah. yeah. That is horrible, but, but it's true. And I feel that way, right? Like Mm -hmm. I feel like the best thing I can do is save up money, Mm -hmm. which is not cool. Like, I mean, and it is true, but that's not cool. Like, I don't want to, I don't want that to be the only solution. Um, and reading this book felt like a step in the direction, if not structurally, because it's still, it's such a mess. But personally, it seems like a really positive step to, 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 read a book like this and to start thinking about these things and not be afraid of them. Um, Ooh, it's hard, though. Yeah,
2: I think this book, I never say this. You know, I'm careful never to say this on our podcast. Like, most books we read, I feel like this is really good, but if you're a person who only reads one or two books a year, you know, like, maybe this isn't the one for you. I think Mm -hmm. everyone should read
0: this book. Yeah. I I think so, too. I think it should be required high school reading. Honestly,
2: so for me, (laughs) I also, my parents are really open about this stuff, so we've kind of talked about it, but and i'm sure they're listening to this and they're going to laugh but Hi mom, my dad <laughs> yeah my dad used to the side note like every time he would take a flight uh when even when i was like 10 he would send my mom a letter like what to do if if i die and then he started sending them to me when i was in college oh,
1: oh god um, jesus but that's anyway a lot.
2: uh You're like, but dad, anyway you just
1: you just took a commuter Silly. Yeah,
2: exactly. Maybe
1: maybe kind of healthy, though. But totally,
2: totally. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Um, And my mom would roll her eyes, but. You know, it's more open in my family than other families. However, if my siblings and I together read this book and then talked to my parents, like we would have very specific questions. And then it takes the burden off like one particular sibling or, you know, we could say like, okay, if this happens, then then this, Uh, then what would you want? Or, you know, Mm -hmm. do you guys have the same plan or a different plan, you know? Uh, and I think that's why everyone should read it because it gives a collective yeah. conversation and a collective vocabulary. I mean, it is very philosophical, as we're saying, but it's also very practical. You know, like it yeah. has.
1: It's, I, it's I kept practical. thinking it's yeah. so yeah.
0: it's it's like a self help book that's an anti self help book, right? <laughs> because like so many like this is like I hate the self help genre, and part of the reason is because it's always about like getting the results. Like here, you know, mm-hmm. here's how to like live a better life so you make more money or. Get, get laid more often or whatever the like criteria, you know, whatever. It's always a list of like, a, and this book is like, look, you're probably not going to get everything you want. Right. Yeah. You're going to die. you're pre- And you're going to get used to that idea. So start preparing for it now. Yeah. And I'm like, thank you. Like, thank you for just laying it out there. Be like, yeah, like all those like desires that I've had you know, since a, a child, like what I'm going to achieve and what I'm going to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, like no matter what the last 20 years of your life, aren't really going to be about those things.
1: No. And yet we spend
0: so much of our energy and yet we're talking like 20 years at least, significant, right? Where s- you're,
1: significant amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. You're
0: literally not going to be able to, uh, run a marathon or, uh, walk write an American novel, walk upstairs, or, you know, walk upstairs. <laughs> like you're, it's going to come down to who do you, eat breakfast with and Mm -hmm. and who do you you know go to sleep next to or who changes your diaper like that's literally like what matters those last you know maybe 20 years of your life and that like that that to me is like the most practical Mm self-help advice we could possibly get so I'm not kidding I think this should be required reading Mm -hmm. I mean obviously I don't think this would have struck home if I had read it when I was younger I do think it's like every 40 plus year old should read this book like immediately
1: You don't need to read this when you're 14, but when you're 42 and and you go to the yeah. doctor and they're like, "We need to talk about your blood sugar," that's right. when you buy the book.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: So I want to tell you, yeah. So this book affected my my daily life um, pretty much immediately in a couple of different ways. <laughs> you're laughing. But, so I have two I have two stories, um, and I'll start with the one that's that's tougher, and I have not talked about this. At all, But um, I did tell you guys, not on the podcast, that I had two miscarriages this year and we're trying to have another kid and it's been like really emotional and tough. Um, And I want to be open about that on the podcast because it's so common and I'm sure there's other listeners out here that tears could well up in your eyes at any second and I totally get that. (laughs) But while I was reading this book, I was starting to go in for like tons of testing and stuff like that. And I really was, like, in the mode of, like, how is this doctor talking to me? How am I being clear about what my goals are versus right. just do the next procedure, which with infertility or any fertility problems, like, you can really get on that track. Like, what's next? Right. What's the next thing? Um, and so that was fascinating. And I, ha- I happened to have a really good, really, really good doctor and, like, I I suddenly understood, like, he gets this. Like, he's emotionally connecting and, like, is connected to the goal of this process. Now, like, with baby stuff, it's a really clear, happy ending. So (laughs) it's also, like, the goal is is not die. The goal is the opposite of die. Um, Right. But it was so cool to see doctors who take that time and for patients to understand, like, don't lose track of... You know, you really have to make choices here. Um, So I thought that was really, it was a cool effect that had nothing to do with death. And then similarly, this is a much more happy story. Um, My daughter got a splinter, um, a splinter of glass uh, while I was reading this book. And it was in her foot. And Mm -hmm. she's like completely fucking (laughs) phobic of tweezers.
1: Oh, I used to be phobic of tweezers when I was a yeah. kid. And oh she, my God, she's yeah, going crazy. Glass
0: in your foot's worse than yeah, tweezers. Yeah, true.
1: Jesus. Yeah,
2: but no, she she literally said like, "Leave the glass." <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> she's three. Just, she was like, "Leave the glass," and then she said, "I'll be brave tomorrow." <laughs> um, You're like, so no. she's she's oh. arguing and and like, I was getting like you know, frustrated because I was like, I know this is just going to take a second. Like, let me just use these freaking tweezers. Like this is, this is so much worse because you're so resistant. And then literally because I was reading this book, I was like, wait a second. I, at this point I have forgotten about her. I'm just trying to win this, this parenting battle. Right. So I, I was like, let me take a minute and like really think through what the goal is here. The goal is to get the glass out, not to use tweezers. Um, AKA do this tiny medical procedure. So instead (laughs) we got a big piece of duct tape (laughs) and we like talked it through with her. And I was like, one hundred percent channeling Atul Gawande.
0: <laughs> like, what are yes. your goals? Like, right. Vega,
2: our goal Trying to is be
0: informational. <laughs> yes, not exactly. Just the, yeah, he, he talks about the two different models right. of doctoring. Yeah, like, exactly. They, right. And I was like, I, I, yeah. I
2: was like, I can't leave it all in her hands because right. if it's all in her hands, she's going right. to say, "Leave the glass in." Right. I'm it's fine.
0: Right. And I then, need to get to that wedding. <laughs> but at the same time, you can't be authoritarian and be like, right. "You're taking the glass
1: out exactly. with these things. Exactly. Right. So yeah.
2: we took right. the, we pulled it out with duct tape, which was so easy. And like, I learned something that you can do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: and then afterwards, she's like coming down from her absolute panic attack, and then like ten minutes later, she just goes, "Mama, you're really nice,"
1: <laughs> and I was
2: like, "Oh my god, this is what it feels like." Like. Treating something scary or something painful, like it doesn't have to be a battle that's win or lose. Like, right. actual humanity can come into play.
1: And then so, cut to yeah. Julia in bed. Siri, how much is med school? <laughs> is <that it> now? <laughs> yeah. Med God. schools yeah. near Hartford. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but yeah, well, well, while we're on kids say the darndest things stories, I I kept thinking about about three months ago. I was in the woods with my son. And, uh, we were, we, I I forget what happened. I probably mentioned something about a tree that was dying or a plant that was dying. And then we started the death conversation and and he just, the way he phrased the question at this point, he's like, dad, it's okay that we die. Right. (laughs) Oh boy. And I had no idea how to answer that. Like, what do you mean? And I just kept saying, what do you mean? It's okay. He's like, I mean, it's okay that we die. Right. And I was like, you know, so torn because on one hand I wanted to say, no, rage rage against the dying of the light right. right like no you fight it sucks that we die but on the other hand i wanted to be have a very healthy sort of yeah. like yes it is okay that we die it is you know so i kept just sort of interrogating him back and we we never settled it because i didn't know i it, but it was like i was like my heart was pounding in my right. chest because i was like this is the moment like he i am imprinting in him comfort but also like i, I want him to be comfortable with death but i also want. him to, to not be like, right. I, you know, I want him to know that it's not something good that you that you, you yeah. have to fight against it. And it was so weird. I kept thinking about that while I was reading this book. I was like, right. Like I, and I still, you know, I'm still not quite sure how to, cause I'm always, you know, I'm, my wife makes so much fun of me cause I'm always the one that's like, when you die, you die. Right. Like I, you know, with my son, like I'm so straightforward about like, I do not get, you know, I don't pull any punches, but what the way he phrased that question, is it, you know it's okay that we die I just didn't quite know how to answer well and
1: it. also because you don't want to be like yeah it's okay that we die and then he's like well cool because what I was going to do is I was going to jump off that bridge that
0: is not nice. <laughs> <laughs> or, or pull the wings off this fly yeah. and torture animals yeah. right? it's okay <laughs> no, that we like, kill
1: I, is, is different <laughs> than it's okay that we die <laughs>
2: Oh, Daddy, well. I've been
1: watching the Son of Sam documentary and I just wanted to know he it's okay what he did, right? It's okay yes. that he died, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, what
2: my an God. interesting thing. The
0: question, dog told him though. to. Like, yeah, it was it was just the way he phrased it paralyzed me. Yeah. Because if he had said right. like we we die you know, or, you know, do we die? Or do th- and, and, and I would have been like, yes, and that's it. And just, mm-hmm. you have to accept it, you know, blah, 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 blah. but he was like, is it okay? And I was yeah, like, well, no, it's not, amazing. it's not okay, but it's also okay. It, you know, there's no choice in the matter is basically yeah. what I said. I was like, you know, it's, I kind of was like, it's not really up to us. We just do die. Right. Um, well, so
2: to get back to the book too, I think, you know, it's been a relief thinking about COVID a little bit less, like 1% less since being yeah. vaccinated, but this did drive home to me something that I think is really important about COVID, which is the way that you die from mm-hmm. COVID. On a ventilator with right. someone separated people from you don't separated know. Yes. Yeah. Like that is the worst. Like that yeah. is why COVID is bad. Like if it was a Dying slightly different a... pandemic where you drifted off at home surrounded by yeah. loved ones, that would be right. something completely different, but and what, that's what like is happening now is exactly what we want to avoid.
1: Right. And it's what he talks about, like the difference between like the medical industrial complex that exists now and how people used to die when, when we died at 57, right? right. So when you right. died at 57, you'd get consumption and you'd die at home. Now you get 36 different kinds of cancer that take a really long time to kill you, and you spend six months in a hospital. Surrounded by people you don't know in an unfamiliar place, not happy, being tortured, being tortured, yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, and all for the sake of extending
1: your life, right? And like that was the thing that really fucked with me is like, okay, if we know you're going to die and there's nothing we can do to prevent you from dying, what are we doing? You know, like what what if you know that someone only has six months, and those six months are going to be tortured and filled with radiation? Like, what are we doing? Yeah, you know, um, and that's something actually going back to that uh, veterinarian's book uh, that Susie Fincham Gray wrote, um, where she talks about like the comparison between what we do for sick and dying animals versus what we do for sick and dying people. Mm-hmm. Sick and dying people, we torture them until they die, yeah. and sick and dying animals, we, we just kill them. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, you know, I, I'm I'm personally for assisted suicide, and we in California. It, has it. I don't know if I'd want it. Yeah. Um, like, because well, that,
0: that was an interesting part of yeah. this book where, cause I, you know, I, I've had this conversation a lot, um, with a, a friend of mine who, who is a doctor, um, you know, and he's, he, he, he had a similar opinion to a tool Gawande because like my sort of liberal, like knee jerk, uh, reaction is to be pro assisted suicide. Mm. It, I, I've just always been that way. <clears throat> but He's he has a more nuanced point, and so does my my friend that I grew up with. He's a doctor, like that. There is something to be said for um, for for fighting <laughs> for right. get, for wanting to continue. That if we because I guess uh, you know, and I was a little confused because he he references the Dutch, um, and he says like they they may have not uh, ex- expended as much cultural energy towards extending life right. as they would have. Otherwise, but if he doesn't quite back up with statistics. I really wish he had actually cited yeah, what he was referring to there because I, I'm really curious about that because it does see, you know, it is interesting. Like on one hand, like, you know, palliative care, the, the sort of inevitable, the, the, the logical result of really emphasizing end of life care is that somebody should have self-determination to the point of their own death if they if they want it. But, if we allow that too much, um do we open the door for doctors and researchers and culture in general to no longer fight the good fight, right? And like, keep life going as long as possible in the, you know, as many cases? And i I don't know. it's it's super interesting to me. Like I'm not, you know, I, I think I think people should have a right, but I don't think that that necessarily means we should fall back on it. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, I su- think super
0: easily i liked
2: yeah. I liked his point that. It's almost like swinging the pendulum too hard mm-hmm. the other way. Like if right. we can't yeah. put them on a ventilator, I guess they could just die. Right. <laughs>
1: um, and that's
2: that's so glib, and I apologize. But right, you know there is a ground that but, seems but like, like that's
1: what the that's what like half the Republican point of view was at the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic. Uh, like yeah,
2: right. Just let but them die. Instead, yeah. you know, oh. like hospice nurses, Gowande argues, like hospice nurses understand that actually, if you extend qual quality of life, right. quantity of life may also be extended. And that's right. best case scenario is you yeah. also live longer. You don't just pull the plug, as they L- say.
1: But live longer with a purpose, not just right. live longer to live longer. I mean, that's that's such the, the hard thing. And, you know, there, there's a, a point in the book, too, where he talks about the same woman who had hated living in the assisted living facility. She eventually just tells her her son, I'm ready to die. And then it's another, you know, five months or something before she actually does. Um, and, like, that that notion of saying that I'm ready to die, actually having a physical component to it, is something that mm-hmm. I believe to be true, having mm-hmm. seen it in, in my own family members sometimes. Like, if you say you're ready to die, something's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, and that's why it's good writer that you did not say it's okay to die (laughs) Uh, right (laughs) um but like that whole that whole um notion of having dominion over your own health care and the quality of your life and the quality of your existence i think is is an important part of dying that we just don't really talk enough about and which he spends a lot of time discussing in the book
2: yeah um, I loved the essays that included his father's story. Mm-hmm. I mean, really intense, brave writing about his own father's decline and, like, the choices they made. And, man, that was sad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's always so complicated, right? Mm. I mean, that's what every one of the case studies that he, he dives into, it's like, you know, I mean, going back to the peak some. Are the peak end example that he talks about. Um, it, it, when, whenever we go through a medical experience, especially leading to death, we end up sort of oversimplifying it after the fact, right? right. It's like, oh, so and so had cancer and, and then they died. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that that's, that's like months of like unknown and different visits and emergency. And like when he breaks down all these cases and he goes into those details, it's exhausting. And frankly, like it's a little overwhelming. And like, there are times when my eyes glazed over and I had to put the book down, but I appreciate that, that it, he, he, he walks you through how every step of the way, there was so much uncertainty for the family, including his own family with his father. But in every case he gives, it's, it's, it's. It's so easy to narrativize after the fact as like a sort of simple story, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, they, they got sick and they died, but the truth is like they kind of got sick and then the doctors didn't know what was wrong. And then the mother-in-law chimed in and changed the opinion. And then they went to the, you know, it's like the story just keeps growing and changing. There's, There's no, there, there is no sense of like, ah, this is a closed, easy uh, Narrativeized system, you know, right. like it's all sickness is so complicated, and I think like we, I guess the the problem so much of our culture, and maybe this is just a human brain thing, we tend to think of our bodies as like machines, right? It's like right. they just break down, and we fix them up, and like and the doctors you go when you're broken, and they fix you. I'm and like I feel like his this book and and I I'm, I think the medical community in general has been moving away from that thankfully mm-hmm. towards a much more holistic uh you know sense of you know like take away the metaphorical thinking of like your 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 body as a machine or as a and 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 to recognize that it's actually way more complex than that uh it is its own thing like human mm-hmm. life is something organic the brain is organic it's it's so you know it's 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 basically impervious to metaphor right like there is no real like it's just life right. and it's just living and your physical body is how you are experiencing it so to try and engage with it on a metaphorical level is is always doomed to fail yeah,
2: yeah. and we're now we're just talking about the book like people who have yeah this is so funny like I, you're making me think in a more literary sense now um you know, this book is really straightforward, like mm-hmm. I said, you know, and I don't know how he does this. I like I said, <laughs> I, I love him as a writer because he's he's got that like surgical. He's a surgeon. He's got that right. surgical mindset of problem solving, but he's able to make things literary without making them metaphorical, as you say. Yeah. He doesn't yes. pull any of those tricks.
1: No, he no. it's because he has empathy. Yeah. You know, and so his ability to put himself in the shoes of other people, specifically of the people that are have, you know, a series of complex cancers or something, where he knows that this cancer is going to kill you in 9 months, that cancer is going to kill you in 6 years, why are we treating the cancer that's going to kill you in 6 years?
2: Crucially, he also says, like, I don't know how to do this. I'm not a great doctor.
1: I think there, there's a lot to be gained, though, from simple and direct language and, yes. and, um, and using other people's stories to um, uh, personalize the science. Um, and then also talking about himself and his family. All of that lets you know that he's not a cyborg you know, mm-hmm. there, there's another great book called How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman, who also writes for The New York Times or The New Yorker. Um, and that that's a very helpful one in terms of understanding um, how a good doctor processes processes. It's a lot of S's uh, information. I, w- I want to recommend one other book, too, um, that it, once you read this and then you read the, this book, you um, It's a it's an interesting experience, which is Emily Rapp Black's new book, Sanctuary, um, which is about um, the death of her child from Tay-Sachs and then the time directly after that. And what it's like to to have lived with a child that was doomed to die because uh, Ronan had Tay-Sachs. Tay-Sachs kills your child within three years at the most. Um, And I think Ronan lived just under three years. Um, and what it's like to, you know, have people tell you that you are you are brave for having gone through the death of your child when all you were trying to do the entire time is just give that child some peace, um, and and provide some comfort. That there's that it's not brave, it's human, you know? Um and it's it's an extraordinarily powerful book. It's really hard to read because it's very, very sad. Um but it also frames this entire discussion that we're having inside of literature and inside the history of writing about death and the after and the the aftermath of death, the the feelings that the survivors have. Um, it's a, it's you know it's maybe two hundred pages long in the book, but it, it's it's a very compelling book. Um, about all these things, but it's not from the patient's point of view; it's from the person taking care of the patient's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a neat companion, and also just a, a wonderful book um, by a wonderful writer.
2: Sounds
0: awesome. all right, yeah. All right, well, required reading. Everybody, get out there and read "Being Mortal." <sighs> unless you're, unless you're like still in your twenties, yeah. Then, then just chill for a little bit. But, but, but. 30s, yeah, I would say yeah. uh, get a co- get a hold of this book and and start getting used to some of these ideas.
2: And I'd say, um, you know, your mood's going to be affected. So, yeah.
0: but
1: if you're in your 20s, just find a book where it's just people taking a ton of drugs and having a ton of really risky sex. Yeah, Read we that. used to love those books, guys. <laughs>
0: Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.